And this semester at RUF, we have been studying the Gospel of John together, and we've been looking at Jesus and seeing how um, he is provided, God provides him as the answer to some of the most fundamental questions that we have as humans. Um, I've used this quote a couple of weeks in a row now from Tim Keller where he says that Jesus himself is the main argument for why we should believe Christianity. And so that's what we're doing this semester. We're looking at Jesus and saying if this is the argument for Christianity, then let's, let's examine him together and see what claims he makes. Um, and tonight we're going to look at Jesus and our thirst. We're going to be talking about thirst. Um, I'm going to start by telling you the story of the legend of Gatorade. You guys might have seen the Gatorade commercial where they tell the legend of Gatorade. Uh, 1965, the Florida Gators are playing football. They're plagued by heat. They're running out of gas in the second half. Um, They're dehydrated. Uh, The trainers realize that no player has used the bathroom in the second second half of the game. Like They're totally dehydrated. And so they have four doctors in the University of Florida. They create this drink with carbohydrates and electrolytes in it. And it's, the, it's named Gatorade. Gatorade. And so the next year, the team goes 9-2, and two, and they win the Orange Bowl for the first time. Um, and the secret to the drink was that it not only quenched their thirst, but it also provided for them hydration. Right? The hydration, the power to keep moving, to keep playing, to keep pushing. And Gatorade continues to sell us with this premise. We are thirsty, but we don't just need water. We need fuel. And so Gatorade is fuel. And this is true for us, not just at the physiological level, but we have a deeper thirst. Um, we have a longing for a deeper quench, if you will, a need for a deeper hydration, need for deeper fuel. And we know this, right? This is a common experience for us as humans because we go after things um, attempting to quench this thirst that we all have. Um, we try to quench our thirst with sex or success or um, building our self-image or substances, expecting them to somehow satisfy some of this deeper thirst, um, the thirst that we can't really make sense of. We know it needs to be quenched. Um, you might even say that it's a spiritual thirst. See this quote on your bulletin from Bertrand Russell. He was a British philosopher, and he described thirst this way. He says, The center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious pain, Searching for something beyond what the world contains. Something transfigured and infinite. And that search, that longing, right? we could say that that's a type of thirst. And you're here tonight um, because you're at least considering the possibility of a spiritual thirst. And so our passage tonight that Forrest read, um, we actually see that Jesus addresses our thirst as humans. And so our outline, um, it's on the back of the bulletin if you want to follow along or take notes. We're talking about the problem of a perpetual thirst, the promise of living water, and finally the provision of the Holy Spirit. So first, the problem of a perpetual thirst. So first, to set some context for where we are, we're in John 7, and Jesus, we're told that this is... um, This is taking place in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths was the Feast of Sukkot, which um, happened yearly, and it was their their fall harvest. It was like their fall festival. And so what they would do, the Jews would do, is they'd set up these these temporary shelters everywhere. They did it in their houses, on tops of their houses, did it in the streets, they did it in their gardens. And the walls of these temporary shelters would be made with palm fronds and willow branches. Um, And coincidentally... Uh, Hillel, this, is, this week is Sukkot. I don't know if you guys saw the, uh, the like, the, it's called a Sukkoth. Um, it's in the, the parking lot right here. Did y'all see this? It's like this 
this temporary shelter. And so how great is it that they're celebrating the, the, the Jewish holiday this week, and this is where we are in John 7. So um, it's kind of like that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, walk out that way. It's in the parking lot behind um, just, just right over here. And so there's these temporary shelters that were built to celebrate um, uh, annually. And so all the men of Israel were required to attend this feast. So men from all over Israel would have traveled to Jerusalem um, for this feast. Huge festival. Think like hit the bricks, but if everyone went to hit the bricks and you went on for a week, um, it's just this huge festival. And so this has a great theological significance for Israel. So um, they are together remembering God and his provision for them in the Exodus. When God freed them, heard their cries when they're in slavery in Egypt, and freed them through the hand of Moses into the wilderness, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 days, and God rained manna from heaven providing for them. Um, and so what they do is they, they build these little, these little booths with these thatched walls and roofs that are open in the ceiling. There's not really a ceiling, it's, it's, it's open, so that when they sleep, they would see the stars and see the skies and remember um, together uh, what it was that they went through for 40 years as God led them into the promised land. Um, it also has an agricultural significance. The Feast of Booths was like our Thanksgiving. So it was them thanking God for his abundant provision uh, at the end of the harvest, or the end of the, yeah, the time of, of the harvest. So each day at the Feast of Booths, what would have happened is people, so all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, with palm branches and willow branches, would have marched to the temple together and then marched around the great altar. And there would have been people playing the flute and people playing trumpets and people making a lot of noise. Um, And then the priest would have led this great parade every day where he took this, this golden pitcher and he went down to the Pool of Siloam And he filled the jar with water, and then he carried it back up through the water gate. And then all of the people together would be reciting Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. And so then he'd carry this water up to the temple, and then pour it out as an offering to God. And while this is being done, Psalms 113 to 118 would be sung by a choir of priests and accompanied by flutes. Um, And one of the choruses in this, in Psalm 118, this is said twice, Um, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. So people are shouting this. They're waving their branches in the air. So the whole ceremony with the parade and the flutes and the singing was such a joyful occasion that one ancient rabbi wrote this. He said, anyone who has not seen this water ceremony has never seen rejoicing in this life. So just the fullest picture of joy and rejoicing. And right, it's this dramatic reenactment of what God had done in delivering them. In a way, it's this communal prayer for rain. It's like this rain dance, rain prayer, thanking God for the rains to give them the harvest that they would have life, dramatically enacted together. And so on the last day of the Feast of Booths, they would march seven times around the temple, singing and shouting with, with the flutes and the trumpets. And this was in remembrance of the seven times that God's people walked around the walls of Jericho and that God caused the walls of Jericho to fall, that they would enter into the promised land. And so they're remembering together, reenacting this event of God's great deliverance. And so against this background, and perhaps at this very moment, Jesus stands up in the temple and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what does it mean to be thirsty? 
As I drink water, I mean, that wasn't supposed to be funny. Um, so our, our feeling of thirst points to this physiological need for hydration, right? The Gatorade story shows us this. I don't need to define thirst for you. We get it. We all know what it's like to be thirsty. Um, and thirst is a problem. We know this. Um, I read an article a few years ago in The Atlantic saying that uh, the next 20 years, we're going to see these great wars in the world over clean water, that clean water is going to be the resource that people will be fighting over. Um, and we also know that thirst is a problem because drinking from the wrong place will kill you. There's so many dr- diseases that come from drinking contaminated water. Like we need clean water to live. Uh, the stat I read was that drinking, horrible, drinking dirty water leads to over 3 million deaths a year. So we need good water as humans. We need good water that gives life, not bad water that leads to death. And into our problem of thirst, Jesus promises living water. Look at verse 37 with me. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I just want to unpack this verse a little bit with us. Um, Answering what is the promise that he's talking about in scripture? What does it mean that Jesus is claiming it for himself? And then how do the people respond? So the promise he's making here, as he says, um, as scripture has said. What Jesus is referring to is Ezekiel 47. And so Ezekiel 47 is this picture of the fullness of redemption that will come through the Messiah. Who is the, one, the Messiah was the one who Israel was waiting for to save them. And, so, um, and it's this picture of the new creation that would come in and through the Messiah. So what it is, is the prophet Ezekiel has this vision. And in this vision, a man, who you can assume is an angel, is leading him to the temple. And they go to the temple in the center of Jerusalem, and they go to the east door and see that there's actually water coming out, like leaking out from under the door. Um, and it's flowing east. And so they walk about a quarter of a mile, and they find that the water is now ankle deep. And they walk another quarter of a mile east, and they find that the water um, is knee deep. Another quarter of a mile, waist deep. Another quarter of a mile, and then they're no longer allowed to, able, they're no longer able to walk across it. It's just so deep, it's a river. Now, so they, they get out of the river, and they step onto the bank, and then they see that there's lots of trees growing on the banks of the river, and this angel says to Ezekiel that the water keeps on going. It goes for a full 20 miles all the way into the Dead Sea. And then when the water flows into the Dead Sea, um, in the vision, Ezekiel sees that the sea itself turns into fresh water. So the Dead Sea is so salty that nothing can live in it, hence the name, the Dead Sea. Um, And so wherever this river goes, the water becomes fresh. Like, this doesn't happen in nature. If you mix fresh water and salt water, salt water, what do you get? You get salt water. Um, And what's happening in this is that as this fresh water flows out of the temple, it actually makes the salty things fresh giving space for life to grow. And what we see in this vision is that the river is teeming with life. Multitude of fish, fishermen on the banks fishing and pulling out all these fish. And then on both sides of the banks of this river, there's all kinds of trees growing fruit. The leaves don't wither. The fruit doesn't rot. There's fresh fruit every month because this fresh water is flowing from the temple. And this water from the temple is taking the dead and the uninhibitable things and making them full of life. Right? So this is a picture that we get in Ezekiel 47 of full, abundant, teeming, flourishing life of the new covenant that will come through the Messiah. And what fuels this flourishing? What gives the power for life to exist and grow and thrive? 
Well, the water's flowing from the temple, which what he's saying is that it's coming from God himself. That this water of life is going to flow from God himself. So what does it mean then that Jesus is claiming this for himself? Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this promise. Right? He's standing up in the middle of the, the water celebration and saying, this is about me. Come and drink and streams of water will flow from you. Jesus is making an exclusive claim about his identity as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises of the new creation. Right? He's saying, in me, the world will be transformed. In me, there is hope of abundant life. In me, life will conquer death. In me, rivers of living water will flow as far as the curse is found. We see that his promise of this actually creates division. Jesus is saying, it's all about me. This festival, the promises of the Bible, the entirety of the Jewish religion, it's all about me. Um, there's another quote on your bulletin I want to read. It's from C.S. Lewis. And he says this, um, C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So Jesus' promise of living water creates division. And it actually begins this debate about his credentials. Right? The, the crowd say that he's a prophet, that he's the Christ. And the leaders say, where are his credentials? He's from Galilee and not Bethlehem. And this is because the, um, the promise of where the Messiah would come from is that it would come from the city of David, come from Bethlehem. We know that that's where Jesus was born, but the leaders don't know this. They just know that he's a man from Galilee, which is this remote village way out in the boonies. Um, and so this is creating this division. And then we see this division between the officers and the chief priests and Pharisees. This is in verses 45 and 46. Um, they say, why don't you arrest Jesus? And then the officers respond, no one has ever spoken like this man. And then we see division between the Pharisees and the crowd in verse 47. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, then you've been deceived. And then finally we see division between Nicodemus and Pharisees. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, you saw that Jesus has this meeting with Nicodemus where he comes to him. And they talk about life and um, this possibility of new life and new creation in Jesus. And um, Nicodemus is saying to the Pharisees, hey, we've got to give Jesus a fair trial. And then the Pharisees insult him, right? They say, are you from Galilee too? Um, so we see, what, what we're seeing here is that the proclamation of Jesus' identity and the proclamation of Jesus' work always creates division. His identity, who he is, that he's a prophet, that he's the Christ. And his work, what it is that he came to do, to give streams of living water to all who believe in him. And this creates division here, which ultimately leads to Jesus' death. And this creates division now. Um, right? Though we may be united in our thirst, we will be divided in whether or not we drink from Jesus. And Jesus' promise is that if you drink from me and you believe in me, that's what he's saying when he says, if you drink from me, living water will flow from within you. 
So John tells us here that when Jesus is speaking about living water, he's speaking about his spirit, which he says he will give to those who believe in him. But at this point, the spirit hasn't yet been given. It hasn't been given as living water flowing from inside of you yet because Jesus had not been glorified. And so what John's doing here is he's pointing us forward to the day of Pentecost, which is this day 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, um, when he ascends into heaven and then pours out his Holy Spirit on his people. Now, the Holy Spirit has always been with God's people, but now, in a new way, God dwells in his people. And this is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is saying, believe in me, drink from me, and you will be filled. So what does this look like? What does life-giving water look like? Right? This is an analogy that's a little bit amorphous for us. What does this mean? Well, in verse 38, um, this verb, he says, believe, is in the Greek present tense. So this is not like our English present tense. In Greek, it's this linear, ongoing, um, which expresses habitual and continuously present activity. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the abundance of the Spirit is for those who are believing now and keep on believing. So believing is this present, ongoing belief and is thus this continual channel for receiving this living water, for receiving grace moment by moment. There's a pastor in the 20th century named Jack Miller, and on reading this passage, he said this. He said, not only did this awaken my confidence in Christ's ability to help me, but also began to work in me a new release from my self-dependence and my self-effort. I then knew with quiet, unshakable faith that God's promises were mine as a servant of Jesus, mine to claim for life and service in his church. There was a power available to change me, and it could be claimed by any Christian right in the present now. So the question that Jesus poses to me and he poses to you is, are you thirsty? Do you need grace moment by moment? Do you need help from God? Do you want freedom from your self-dependency and self-effort? Do you want power to be changed? Jesus' invitation and promise is for you. And he says, drink. Believe. You don't need to dress it up. You need to figure out how thirsty you are. You don't need to figure out... You don't need to ask permission to take a sip. Jesus is saying drink and drink deeply. So what is this experience then of living water? What is it like? Well, first, when your thirst is satisfied in Jesus, you'll have the power to resist drinking from dirty water and false wells. The living water is the present experience of the Holy Spirit applying God's grace to you. And then that which flows out of you is the fruit of that same spirit. And later in the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church um, in Galatia, and he said this. He said that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So I asked some friends what their experience of Jesus' living water was like, because I really wanted to um, put some flesh on this. What is this like? What is the experience of drinking living water like? And one friend said this. She said, when my focus is on Jesus, when I'm drinking from him, it transforms life. I have joy instead of drudgery. I have peace instead of fear. I have self-control instead of feeling out of control. And we can add to that list that we have love instead of apathy, kindness instead of rudeness, goodness instead of seeking others' harm, faithfulness instead of flakiness, gentleness instead of harshness. The promise is that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. 
This is a promise that you will have grace on tap whenever you need it. Like the soda machine in the pit, but in your stomach. So heart, this word for heart, is this Greek word that refers to the stomach cavity, or more specifically, to the place where you have the feeling of being hungry and thirsty, and in the place where you have the feeling of being full. So Jesus is offering living water to flow into you and out of you. This water is for you, that you would be satisfied in him. And it's also for the world, that others may experience the goodness of Jesus through you. I mean, think through how this could change your relationships. To have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Think what this would look like with your parents. Or maybe with your roommate. Or with the girls in your sorority. That, that as the living water flows out of you, as your life displays the fruit of the Spirit that comes from drinking in Jesus, um, your roommate, your professors, um, your friends might taste and actually see the goodness of Jesus in you. When I was working on this, I was thinking of this, um, this film that a friend recommended to me a couple years ago called Jean de Florette, which is a 1986 French film. I didn't find it on my own. Um, but it's a really great movie, and it tells the story of these two farmers who want to grow flowers. And so they've got this neighbor who has good land that has this fresh spring bubbling out. Um, and they get in this fight with him, and they end up killing him. Um, and then going over to land and blocking up the spring with concrete. Because their plan is that when the estate is, is broken up, they'll see that there's no fresh water on this land. And so they'll sell it for really cheap. And then these two brothers will buy the land and they'll unblock the spring. And then they'll be able to irrigate their field to grow flowers and to make their money. Well, the plan doesn't go that way. Um, the brothers block up the spring and then the sister of the man they killed gets the land. Then she dies and then her son inherits the land. He moves from the city to the country to farm this land. Um, and this is Jean de Florette. And he has these great plans to live off the land and um, to raise crops and rabbits. And um, he is eager and earnest. He's this wonderful Frenchman. Um, and then we enter the hot French summer. And their cistern where they've stored water runs dry. Um, and then the family, you see the family start getting really thirsty and then you see the crops start to die because they can't water them. And then this horribly sad scene where you see all the dead rabbits. Because they're trying to raise those rabbits for food and they can't feed them water. Um, and ultimately the, the earth on this piece of land is completely parched. And Jean de Florette, who's given his life to trying to make this land produce for his family, he dies. Um, and what you see is that this piece of land that once had this spring that was flowing with water um, has been blocked up, and the result is only death and misery. So this past weekend, um, I was home on Saturday. I think Mary Clark was out running errands, and I was home with the kids. And um, my kids are five and two and a half, and uh, they, were, they were getting on my nerves, um, which sometimes happens a lot, all the time. Um, and I was the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit with them. I mean, it was drudgery. I mean, I felt out of control. Um, I was apathetic. I was rude. I was harsh. Um, and, and then I thought to myself, I need to pray. And I, I snuck away into the basement and said, Jesus, help me. Um, and sat in silence and um, felt my grip open 
and felt that blocked up spring break open. Um, and then I was actually able to re-enter the chaos of my children and actually enjoy them. Um, and the afternoon was wonderful. Um, and I say that just to illustrate this, that, that this is a promise that is yours now through faith. And so I have to ask you, where is there parched earth in your life? Where is that, um, that, that spring blocked up? Is it, when you look at Wake, um, where is it there? Where is it in your family? Where is it in your relationships? Or maybe even in your own heart? Where is the ground hard with drought? John 7, what John's showing us here is that Jesus' plan to irrigate the world and the people in it, um, is, it's by the living water that flows from you when you're drinking from him. So he's inviting you to drink from him and then offer this water to those who need it. So how do you offer this water? Well, um, give people Jesus. Tell them how Jesus is satisfying your thirst and then um, you can bring them here so they can hear about the grace that is theirs in Jesus. And so finally, how do I get this living water? Um, well, the promise is simple. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, then drink. As much as you need, whenever you need it, um, believe. Believe now and go right on believing. Believe in Jesus and these streams of living water will flow out of you. Jesus is offering this gift of living water as a friend. And he's offering it to his enemies. See, in order for Jesus to quench our thirst, he himself died thirsty. On the cross, after Jesus had been crucified, knowing that it was all now finished, um, Jesus said, I thirst. Jesus went thirsty, this deep soul thirst, so that you would never have to go thirsty again. And in order for Jesus to give us this gift of living water, he first had to drink the cup of his father's wrath. Jesus drank that cup of the waters of death so that he could offer you the rivers of living water. And this living water flows freely to you because Jesus has finished the work. Now the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, in the final scene in Scripture, we're shown what the world will look like when all things are made new, when death is finally destroyed, and when God himself dwells with man. And do you know what that scene is? It's the river of life. It's this river flowing from the throne of God. And flowing from the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world. He is the source of all life and goodness. He is the source of living water, which alone can quench our thirst. Let's pray.